Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. I was unable to present a true, authentic Michael Washington, a true, authentic father, a true, authentic human being who's receiving the worst news that a parent can get and and not just be myself. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Michael Top Washington, a Marine Corps veteran and retired firefighter who now serves as a mental health therapist focusing on veterans and first responders. He chose this new mission because of his own struggles with PTSD and the emotional toll of losing his son, a fellow Marine, in Afghanistan in 2008. Mike Washington's story has inspired millions. He was featured in the Starbucks Upstander campaign and was recently interviewed by Oprah. He's also a good friend and one of those rare people who I think about in tough moments because just knowing that Top Washington is out there somewhere makes the world seem a little better. Top, thank you for joining us on Burn the Boats. Wow, you're welcome, Ken. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that amazing introduction. I'm like, who is that guy? Who is he talking about? I don't need him. <laughs> uh, first question, now that uh, now that you're besties with Oprah Winfrey, uh, why are you still talking to me? <laughs> well, because I'm besties with you first, and loyalty is uh, a, a big deal for me. So, yeah, sure, Who's, uh, Oprah's not better than you. <laughs> well, she's better at this than me, but uh, my favorite thing about talking to you, Top, is that it's an actual conversation. It's a back and forth. But for those who don't know you yet, for the listeners who haven't heard you on on some of the other programs uh, where you've shared your story, I, I got to ask you to give us the context for your new mission uh, as a therapist, mental health therapist for vets and first responders. Because I want to dwell on that. I want to dwell on the redemptive quality of that, the new purpose that's given you. But we have to frame it. Can you talk about June 14th, 2008? Absolutely. Um, and, and let me just let me start out by saying that June 14th was probably the culmination of 40 some odd years of uh, pain, trauma, things that that we as a society and and especially people in uniform, whether it's law enforcement, fire or military, we've been taught and uh, encouraged to just kind of push away, to laugh at, to drink, to deal with the things that we work with. And then, you know, for me, finally, it was that day at the fire station where two Marines uh, pulled up with my son's mom in the back and of their white suburban, and I knew exactly what was getting ready to happen because I had rehearsed this day when he left for Iraq, and then when he left again for Afghanistan. I said, you know, what if this day happens? And and sure enough, it did happen, and it, uh, that quickened, I think, my uh, my challenges and my issues, and maybe the collapse of of the facade that I uh, that mask that I wore, you know, for so long, like so many of us do. And, uh, you know, it was just a downhill slide, a a rather quick one from there that led me at some point to a, to standing on a bridge, just waiting to go over, just waiting for that, 
one little urge to push me over. And uh, instead, I got a pull back, if you will, a, a presence that pulled me back and a voice that was my son's that said, this doesn't end here, dad. This is, this is, you've got, you've got work to do. And that was the beginning. It, it certainly wasn't the, the end of my struggles, but it was the end of my struggles uh, of, of ending my life, of suiciding, of riding my motorcycle through uh, against red lights at busy intersections, you know, kind of hoping I'd get hit and it would look like an accident. And uh, then obviously being on a bridge and really deciding to suicide. Still some challenges on the way. I went to a, started off with a program called Save a Warrior, um, which was a five-day retreat that just helped me get in touch with with how we end up getting here in the first place. Even before we stand on the yellow footprints of some boot camp or academy or or what have you to, to be the people we are. Um, and just how much our armor took hits from ages zero to 18 and how we've ignored it. Especially, you know, my generation, my generation was reared by the, the World War II generation, the people who who went through the depression and world war two and complaining and talking about problems was not part of the program. And so you learn those lessons from them when they're your football coaches and, you know, just mentors in your community. And that's how they did it. And they suffered through it. Um, especially in older age when they retired, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was it. And so I, I got an understanding, a real understanding about how I arrived here in the first place. Now, the next step after that, after that, of course, was, okay, what do you do next when you come home ready to go? And that's where I reached out to the VA to talk about, you know, Desert Storm and, uh, you know, my success of combat tours after that. And, uh, yeah, and then just constantly working on myself. And once I was able to understand for myself, I was more effective as, as a counselor and confidant to my friends and fellow law enforcement and veterans. So that's how we got here. Top, you talked about the mask that you wore, and you wore it not just as as a grieving parent, but especially as a father, because we condition men to behave a, a certain way in the face of trauma. You wore it as a Marine, because we, until very recently, conditioned our soldiers to to wear that same mask. Can you talk about and I'm only asking you to revisit the moment because you wrote about it recently and incredibly eloquently in this in this Washington Post op-ed when you talked about the feeling of seeing that suburban drive up and, and knowing what those Marines in, in full dress were going to say. You wrote, I didn't know how to cope with the news or even how to feel the loss. What do you mean by you, you didn't know how to feel? Well, I reverted very quickly to, you know, Master Sergeant Mike Washington and Firefighter Mike Washington and that image of what that was supposed to look like or what I thought, what, uh, you know, uh, what movies tell us, you know, what society tells us a Marine and a firefighter should, how they should uh, comport themselves and present themselves in, in these most trying times. I, the idea of being a grieving parent being a human being never entered into the, into the picture. It was just like, okay, stand at attention. When that young captain walked up to me and rendered a, a very solemn, slow hand salute and asked me if I was um, Master Sergeant Michael Washington, father of Sergeant Michael Washington. And we went through the whole process. It was, uh, 
you know, he had his role that he had to play. And I can't even imagine doing his job, but he can't come up and, and be a human either. He has to be a very solemn Marine Corps officer and he can't cry. He can't just reach out and hug me. He can't do any of those things. And, and so we both come from that, that same warrior class. And so neither of us could do that. And, and so all that had to get pushed down and, and that mask that I've been wearing for 40 something years to deal with other traumas in my life, starting from age zero to that moment that continued to get pushed down. And I was, I was unable to present a true authentic Michael Washington, a true authentic father, a true authentic human being who's receiving the worst news that a parent can get and, and not just be myself. And consequently, when people were coming to me afterwards, I, I went into the role of comforting them. You know, I'm, I'm the one who's just, ah, it's going to be all right. You know, it's going to, you know, we'll get through this. And they're there for me to do that, but I'm not allowing that to happen. But those emotions got it. They have to go someplace. All the emotions that we push down, that we pretend like aren't there, they have to go someplace and they, they will, they will come out and will happen. At the same time that, you were thrust into the role of of comforter for others. You were engaged in some pretty self-destructive behavior as a reaction to that to that trauma. Can you talk about the risk-taking behavior that veterans especially engage in as as a coping mechanism in in the op-ed? And the reason I'm asking you about it is because I I'm pretty sure that veteran suicides are undercounted because of just this thing, because of all the vets I know who go out and do crazy, reckless things because they're dealing with something else. Absolutely. And it's law enforcement and fire service, emergency room people, you know, the first responder community as a whole, I think we do this. And for me, it was just that. It was riding my motorcycle fast. It was uh, taking turns, you know, a lot faster than I should. And then ultimately when... I was just, you know, playing Russian roulette, let's call it what it is, just seeing what happens if I get through this intersection. And maybe it was meant I was supposed to live another day, another week, what have you. And eventually what stopped me from doing that was, as crazy as it sounds, it wasn't my daughter, my grandkids, the the hundreds of friends that I have that, that are very special to me. It was the idea of I didn't want a first responder to show up on that scene and then find out that I was a first responder because that carries an extra weight and adding to that Rolodex of misery of images that they didn't have to have. This did not have to happen. We go to accidents. We go to things that, you know, they occur, but this is something that I would be forcibly putting into their memory. And we can't forget. We don't forget. That's not how we're designed. And I just didn't want to do that. Your op-ed coincided with National Suicide Prevention Month. And you put a fine point on it talking about guns. It was partly personal reflection, but partly a policy demand that we take suicide by firearm more seriously in the veteran community. When you think about the myriad reasons why veterans suicide at a, at a higher rate than their civilian counterparts, one of them has to be the familiarity and easy access with firearms. Why did you take that issue on? Well, Ken, I, I believe 100% that if I was in possession of a firearm, in my dark moment, fueled by alcohol, I think I would have, you know, really played Russian roulette and 
just ended it right there. I'm certain that would have happened. And that's, I think that's what happens with a lot of veterans. But a lot of people too. I mean, just plain people, because it's, it's, it's a little known fact. And I've checked my numbers to be 100% sure. There's a huge percentage of, of older white men who take their lives by suicide with firearm. And when people hear that, they're like, oh my God, we got to do something about that. And they say, yeah, we absolutely do. And we have to delve into not only what's driving this, this urge down this path, but making some kind of method, some kind of process where we can remove those weapons, that easy access to those weapons, help these individuals get help. And when they get better, then here, have your, have your weapons back if you want them. You know, it's, this is not infringing, trying to infringe on anybody's rights, but it always gets framed that way. And that's not what this is about. This is about just trying to keep some people alive, some good people alive who feel like they've got no other choice here. You wrote about extreme risk laws. I think there's an analog in red flag laws. What do those purport to do? What When, when an extreme risk law is invoked, just in general, how does that work and who's it designed to help? Well, in a very broad sense, because each state, you know, is going to take a look at it a different way. But if you know of somebody, for example, if you know me and I'm in my darkest period and I'm exhibiting just signs of uh, erratic behavior and, and making statements that suggest that I might suicide and you know that I have weapons, it's almost like an intervention where you know, Mike, this is what we want to do here. And we want to separate you from your weapons. You can get them back later, but we need you to get help. And we want you to get help. And we're going to help facilitate that help. And so it looks different in a lot of different ways. But essentially, that's what it is. And, and if we can even do that on a social basis, where you have that intervention with Mike Washington, and you know Mike Washington has a couple of firearms, and you just say, you and, and 10 of my friends get together and say, Mike, let, let, let us keep your weapons. Let's get you some help, man. We are, we are scared for your life, and we want to do this. That's what it looks like. And uh, we're just trying to put more of a, a fine point, a, a, a legal point, I guess, to it, if you will. And we, there's similar things with somebody who's going through addiction, and it's just like, okay, this person is not going to get the help that they need, so we're going to have an intervention, and we're going to get this person to a facility, whether they want it or not. And that has what it looks like. And I know it sounds like infringement of rights and for some people and, you know, taking guns away. And it's just really about keeping people alive. That's all it is. I think one of the things a lot of people don't appreciate about this kind of intervention is just how how desperate the person receiving this help is for that kind of that kind of action. I mean, so many of these extreme risk scenarios in which a firearms are secured or taken away are either at the invitation or with the total agreement of the veteran at risk or of the person at risk. And it's happened to friends of mine. They say, some of them have reached out and said, you know, to other friends, will you secure my weapons? I don't trust myself with them. So to your point about Second Amendment and infringement and all that, no, this is just a, in a very real way, an attempt to to create a social mechanism as much as a legal one for people to get together and say, hey, man, you need help. And in the meantime, the last thing you need in your dresser drawer is a loaded gun. Absolutely. And, and I think if we could have a tide change, if you will, of thought 
that where it would be okay to have that conversation with your friends and it'd be okay for that gun owner to say, you know, feel secure enough to say, yes, please take my weapons. I'm going to get help. And then we'll start the process back. And I understand because I'm not, I, I didn't grow up in a gun culture. So, it, you know, I've never owned a firearm in my life. And so it's, uh, I don't have that same feeling about weapons as I think a lot of people do. I wanted to ask you about the enduring effects of trauma. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. And how important is to keep it from transmitting across generations? I, I think you probably know what I'm getting at, but I'll, I'll spell it out because trauma undealt with can be passed down. You can inflict that same harm on your children, on your grandchildren. I've seen it in my own family. My wife's grandfather, who landed on the beach at, at Anzio in World War II, never grappled with his PTSD. I mean, <laughs> the culture back then didn't allow it. And years later, after inflicting so much uh, trauma on, on his family, he took his own life with a firearm. Can you talk about the importance of interrupting that cycle? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, uh, yeah, throughout my recovery and really starting with uh, Save a Warrior and even some of my work as peer support because I I needed to understand firefighters that, that I was going to work with. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to turn that in towards myself. But yeah, just understanding, you know, how how do I how did I arrive to be the person I was? And, and that's before I got on the footprints. What happened to me before I got to boot camp and had these other life experiences? And I look back at my at my mother's upbringing, and she had a truly horrific. I mean, Oliver Twist would cry at her story, and she did her best as a mom, but she brought a lot of her fears, a lot of her traumas, into our relationship, and consequently, I picked up on on a, on a number of those. And and she was a great woman, hard worker. Whatever I am today, you know, she gets that that credit. And uh, but there were things that were brought on and same thing with my father, you know, and uh, so all these senses of abandonment and uh, alcohol and uh, domestic violence, uh, all these things, you know, come into play before I even go to the Marine Corps. And so I'm carrying those with me. And as I understand and realize there's things about my upbringing that I don't want my kids to deal with, I can start working with them, even though I don't really have an understanding of exactly how that occurred. But yes, to answer your question, that is a huge thing. That is a real thing. And, and I don't want people who are listening to just kind of poo-poo this as, a, ah, this sounds like fake uh, fake science or, you know, soft science or anything. It, it's real. And I think we can all, if we all sat there and we thought about it, in my generation, corporal violence was was the norm. And when I say corporal, I we can even promote it to sergeant violence. You know, I mean, it was... That discipline 
you know, in school, at home, violence was the answer to a lot of different things. Most of us who grew up with that, and I don't mean the huge uh, kind of uh, incidences, but that lifestyle we grew up with, most of us either didn't or greatly reduced that kind of uh, discipline on our children that we had. Because we kind of realized that, you know, one, we didn't like it, didn't change anything. We didn't like the way we felt towards our parents, and we didn't like the way that later on how they said they felt afterwards. So I'm not doing that to my child. There's a better way. And we sought that better way. So there's that, that, that sea change that can happen. And that's what I tried to institute with my children as we came up. But so many things that I can identify in my life today, right now, I can look at my parents, I can look at my society at the time and see this is how I came to have this worldview. And I'm changing it. And there were some good things, you know, there too. It was not bad, of course, but there was things that, that didn't need to happen and, and could change. And, I, and I'm trying to change those. I want to pivot to that theme of getting people help. And for you, the way I've heard you tell it, that new mission started on that bridge in Tacoma when you heard your son's voice say, this isn't how it ends, Dad. You got more work to do. And in the year since, you've pursued a degree. And what are you doing now? Well, you know, I was actually doing that work as a peer support member of the Seattle Fire Department and uh, doing a lot of work in that. And it's funny that I could be that guy who is there for that person. Come on, let's let's do this. I know exactly what we need to do here to get you that help. I'll be your... Uh, I'll be here to listen to you, but I did not feel like I could reach out to somebody and and do that. And so, but since, yeah, I I went back to school, uh, got a master's of social work uh, with the idea to work with veterans and first responders as a therapist. And about a year before I retired from the fire department in December, I started working with a clinic here in Seattle. And I I work with a number of uh, first responders and I'm going to start working with veterans here soon, too, as a therapist. And uh, for for a lot of people, it's just somebody to, to listen to them, first of all, and then somebody who, you know, feels exactly the same way they felt or very, very similarly. You know, they've walked the same path. They face the same challenges. And in some cases, you know, felt that that pull to kind of go in a, in a bad direction. And when if I can be there and say, well, look, here's what it looks like down the line, then it's worth it. It's, it was hard. It's a lot of tears, a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth. But at the end of the journey, life is really good here and it just continues to get better. And so that that really is, uh, it's, it's not a talent. It's not a, it's not anything. It's just, it's just my story. And this is not the worst story out there. I'm, uh, I'm working on a, on a book right now and the working title of the book is I am you and you are me because I'm every man. I'm, there's nothing particularly special about me. I, there's no stories where I'm, you know, have hand motions like a fighter pilot saying, there I was. Um, there's no, you know, buildings where I'm jumping out with the baby into, you know, saving him at the last second. You know, I'm, I'm every man. I went through the slings and arrows of life from zero to 18, experiencing things in war and the fire service, personal life, just like everybody, just like everybody. And, uh, and I think that's the big thing is that recognizing that as human beings in this society, you know, we've all taken hits, you know, from zero to 18. And like I said, for me, you know, there was alcohol and uh, uh, abandonment, 
you know, a molestation as a child, just a number of things that I think more people than not, you know, have been hit with one or more of those things. So when you're able to voice it and when somebody sees, oh, you know, Mike's a Marine, he's a firefighter, and he's able to talk about this like this, okay, maybe I can release this demon now and so it doesn't have that dominion over me. I really appreciate the everyman sentiment top, but I got to believe that when you're in your your office with a fellow first responder or vet, it is significant that you are retired master sergeant top Washington. They're going to talk to you in a way that they very well might not talk to someone who, who they don't feel has that shared experience. Is that fair? I think that's fair, but what I absolutely don't want to take away from is the hundreds, thousands of just really good therapists who never wear a uniform. They're just really good therapists. And I know for a lot of uh, first responders and veterans, well, I don't want to talk to anybody who hasn't worn a uniform. You're selling yourself short. You're selling yourself short because there's just some great people out there who just really know how to work with people. And first and foremost, first responders and veterans are people. And I, I always like to, when I talk to people who don't have any connection to the military, so well, what are military people like? I said, well, they're like you. They're, we worked at McDonald's. We went to high school. We did these things before we put on a uniform. So we're, we're normal, everyday people. And so don't sell ourselves short by rejecting someone who has not worn a uniform as a therapist um, because the, man, there's some great people out there. And I, I work with some tremendous tremendous people who never wore a uniform, but boy, are they good. And they've helped a lot of people. But to answer your question, Ken, yeah, that that does buy me a, a few more minutes of listening. But if I'm a bad therapist, I'm a bad therapist. And that, at some point, they're going to go, oh, okay, I see he was in the Marine Corps, but you know what? I knew a lot of chuckleheads in the Marine Corps, too, and this is one of them, so he's out. So uh, I have to study. I have to learn from everybody I can. And uh, and meld that with my story, again, and be every man. Just be every man to, to them. I am always learning from you, Top. Um, and this is another example. Um, because I, I think I have a bias here that comes from the years immediately after the Iraq and Afghanistan wars really heated up and we had all of these folks coming back and, and the VA was overwhelmed and there was just this avalanche of vets looking for help. And I just heard horror story after horror story of the vet going in. And the experience, now that I think about it, was an experience of a vet with a bad therapist, not an experience of a vet with a civilian. And I guess I'm glad to hear you say that it's about just being a, a good listener, a good therapist, a good person, uh, because that that gives permission to so many vets to go seek help even if they can't find a master sergeant to get it from. Well, and, and, that, and that's true. And I think the other part of it is that we've, we've shunted off as the, the first responder veteran, the idea of getting any kind of mental health uh, assistance. We've pushed it so far into that strange category that we don't know what to expect when we walk through the door. I, I lecture around the country on this. And I talk about my, my experience when I first went to the vet center and when I came back from Sable Warrior, I was, you know, like excited. I'm like, all right, man, I'm, I'm going to make a change in my life. I'm going to call up the vet center and get some therapy going. This is going to be awesome. And when it came down to that day to, to go, it was tough. 
you know, suddenly faced with the fact that I, Oh, what's going to happen here. It was really difficult. And, uh, and <laughs> it was just, just the whole process. I drove past the, the off ramp to get to the place. And I've been to that area a lot of times. So there was a part of me that was just avoiding, I was sitting in the, in the uh, waiting room and there was a garbage truck outside that was pounding a dumpster and sounded like a 50 cal. And my breathing was affected. I started to sweat a little bit and, you know, finally my, uh, my therapist, Audrey came up and she says, Mike, and I come up and she kind of motions for me to, to lead the way and go to the door on the right. And I didn't want her behind me. And I was just stressed out and I even got to the door and I looked inside. She goes, what are you, what are you looking for? And I go, I don't know. And she, she says, get in there. And I was like, okay, I need to be ordered to, you know, to get in the room and start the process. But the other thing is too, is doing your homework. When you, when you go to therapy, you don't just go to therapy and they're going to, you know, push a couple buttons and, you know, say an incantation and there you go, you're fixed, you know, off you go. You got to go back and you have to think about what was presented to you. You have to be willing to really talk, really share. If you're not willing to do those things, it's not going to work for you. And I think for a lot of veterans, I think if we're not quote unquote fixed, and I'm doing air quotes here, if we're not fixed in one or two sessions, then we're unfixable and this, this was pointless. And now I can tell everybody I tried therapy and it didn't work. And uh, now if you go for me, I'm comfortable with the idea that, you know, therapy is there for me and, and I can use it for, for the rest of my life. And I'm, I'm about due right now to go, go and uh, check back in for what I like to call an adjustment, just like with a chiropractor, just like with anything else that kind of, you know, I feel all right, but it's, let me go get adjusted anyways, because I don't want to wait until I'm in crisis to go see a therapist, because then there's a lot of work that needs to happen to undo what got me into crisis. Let's work proactively. So there's a lot to it, but we've done a really good job in society, and especially the warrior societies of pushing this away. So now it's, it's the great unknown. It's magic. It's voodoo. And if it doesn't work in one or two sessions, then it's stupid, and I, I'm not going back. Top, we're going to we're going to pivot because I need your wisdom on something that we have been exploring on this show sparked by the events of January 6th, the insurrection and the number of vets who were there. Frankly, the number of vets who I have crossed paths with. I don't have any good friends who were part of that. But, you know, we all know folks who are in that world and as somebody who has, I guess, mined the depths of the veteran mind and endeavored to understand what motivates vets to do things, I'd like to have a conversation about what puts one vet on a path to the Oath Keepers storming the Capitol and another vet looking for, you know, the same sense of mission and purpose and excitement on a path to Team Rubicon. Or, or the mission continues, or Team RWB. I mean, how does that split happen? Well, that's a great question, and we're we're still unpacking that. We're still trying to figure out, you know, what, what is that motivation, and if we could get those people who are in uh, Oath Keepers to go to Red, White, and Blue, or Team Rubicon, or you know, name the organization, and and go out there and see people for who they are, and and help them in the most basic sense. I think that that's just a, a world changing process and where you might feel one way about a group of people, 
but now you're there standing with them and you're watching them cry and you're crying with them after seeing what happened to them. And you see how thankful they are because you showed up on your vacation or in your spare time to help them recover. That's world changing. That, that is, that is a huge, huge thing. And I think if we can get more people in America, in America for sure, you know, and if we want to focus on veterans, you know, to do things like that, to go work at a soup kitchen, to, be that, that relief person, I think that's a, a life-changing process because now you hear the real stories about what happened. If you, I think what happens is I think that we're open to all the propaganda that's out there in the media right now. All these forces that are calling our favor and painting us into us and them. And that us and them is done with stark images, with one-word slogans and when you start attacking what it means to be American and, and what that looks like, and as a veteran, for some veterans, well, it means this to me. And these people over there are attacking that. And I feel like my country's under attack based on these websites I go to, these media sources that I go to. And so now I'm called to action, even though I'm not wearing the uniform anymore, I am called to action to go and be this person who's going to storm the Capitol. Now, when it all falls apart, people are backpedaling. You know, they're kind of like, wow, that's not what I meant. That's, uh, I was duped. I was all these things. But the reality is, is that I think that most of these people were affected by propaganda over the last, I don't know, maybe generation. That might be, that might be fair. Since the, uh, since the 90s, where we just started putting ourselves in more us and them categories. And it just culminated with this attack on our country. You talked about the power of service to bridge some of those gaps, invoking Team Rubicon and that experience of, of being on the, the front lines in the aftermath of a disaster, and, and it just tears down those preconceived notions and those barriers. Do you think that is an important component of therapy? I mean, what you do is talk to people about their their issues and you get them to open up. Is there something active though that can build on that um, that you prescribe as a mental health therapist or is it enough to have the conversations and know yourself better? Well, I think the answer to your questions is yes, <laughs> across the board. I, you know, <laughs> there's something for everybody and, and going to a disaster is not for everybody. Um, and especially if you're dealing with PTSD in a certain way that that might be triggering. Yeah. But there's a hundred different ways to, to go out there and serve your community and, and mix with people that you normally would not mix with. And if we look at our service, especially in the military, when you show up at boot camp, basic training, whatever, this is the first time for a lot of people where they were thrust next to people that they have only heard about. When I uh, was in boot camp in San Diego in 1981, I had never met anybody from the South. I had never heard a, a real life Southern accent. And so I had preconceived notions of what that meant. But when you're in the crucible of boot camp and you find out that a man's and a woman's true character is through that crucible that is boot camp and that it's the content of their character, it's not the color of their skin or what they sound like or what their religion is or anything else, then you truly get an appreciation and you have to look inwards towards you and say, you know what? Yeah, lesson learned. From now on, 
I got to take everybody at, at that base value of who they are and what they bring to the table and how they comport themselves. So you find that in the military. And so when we go overseas in the military, people aren't really looking at us as Jewish or Asian or uh, African-American or white. They're looking at that flag that we're standing under and they're going, those are Americans, we're going after them. And then we have to circle around that flag as Americans. So we need to do that here. If we could bring that same feeling of we are all in this together here in America, not us and them, because you don't have us and them at a full operating base. You don't have us and them on a destroyer that's making, you know, giant figure eights in the Indian Ocean. You just don't have time for that. That's just not called for. You are working with people and you are melding with people and you're getting to see people in a way that a lot of America does not get to see. And that's why it was so important that when I, uh, when I deployed with Team Rubicon and I have civilian volunteers that come up, before I release them, I tell them to take a look around and see all the different people that are here with them. I remember there was a wildland fire in Pateros, Washington, in eastern Washington, and there was a, uh, an Amish community not far away that sent some volunteers in. And it was really interesting because this group who had been in this country for generations, you know, they had a very distinct accent and very distinct look. But yet they were right there standing next to me, standing next to people from all over the country, trying to help people in this town that got ravaged by wildland fires. A lot of these places, we'll never meet these people, we'll never know them. It didn't matter. It didn't matter, but I told everybody to take a look around and see what we got here. And what we had there was America. America at its best. America at its high watermark. If we want to count the uh, the insurrection as a low watermark, the feelings that I have when we go on deployment with Team Rubicon, those are the high watermarks because there's all different colors. There's uh, lifestyles. There's religions. There's everything is represented in Team Rubicon. And it's just a great feeling to be able to say, to recognize that, yeah, man, we all came together, worked really, really hard on our vacations for a lot of people, and we're not going to even meet these people, and that's cool. Where's the next disaster? Let's go. That's America at its best. And I think it's something we have to find a way to get back to. Like you said, not everyone can deploy on a disaster, but there are just so many ways to to serve your own community, your country, to realize that that neighbor that you thought you had nothing in common with, well, you got more in common with than you think. We're going to keep working on that one. <laughs> We're getting uh, General McChrystal back to talk about it some more, but I think you're on to something. Yeah, I'd love to hear his feelings on that. I, I think it's uh, that the concept is simple. The implementation is going to be difficult because like yep. those forces that seek to drive us apart, there's a lot of glitzy uh, media, social media, all the different medias that are out there. And I think we are going to have to employ that process as well. And the message of America, who we are, who we want to be, is so much stronger than the other side. So much stronger. And for that person in uniform who's seeking that to, to quench that thirst, when they see that commercial man, how are they, how are they not going to hear that clarion call to serve their country again and turn their sword into a plowshare and just go out and do good? Top, we always end the show with the same question. What is the bravest thing you've ever done? Quite possibly uh, 
walking into that therapist's office. Maybe that was it. I think that was, I was going against all my, my instincts. I wanted to run. And if we, if we, you know, define bravery as that process of doing something when your instinct is to go the other direction. And, and I know it's self-serving. I know it's for me, but uh, yeah, I'm going to go with that. You know, I, I don't know if this metaphor works, but we always celebrate the first responder for running into the building when other people are running out. Maybe we can add this to it. You got to run into that <laughs> that therapist's office when your instinct is to run away. Absolutely. Well, Top, I said it at the beginning of the show, and it, it merits mentioning you. again. You're you're an inspiration, and uh, I hope you. You not only keep what you're doing in your therapist office, but um, over social media and with uh, with Oprah and me. <laughs> so I'm honored to, to be able to talk to you and let's do it again soon. Absolutely. This is the big time right here, Ken. You're the big time. <laughs> Thanks again to Top for joining me. Next week on Burn the Boats, I'm joined by Ann Nelson. She's an award-winning correspondent, playwright, and author of Shadow Network about a powerful right-wing political coalition. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.